Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It uh, brings to light uh, what it was like to be a prisoner of war during, during that period, and for, certainly from one person's experience. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Chip Langston discussing the life of Captain James Morris, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Rhode Island Publication Society, publishers of the new book, Revolutionary War Defenses of Rhode Island by John K. Robertson. Available now wherever books are sold. Visit their site, ripublications.org, today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches, and Happy Thanksgiving. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Chip Langston, and he'll be discussing the life of Captain James Morris of Connecticut. One of the great things about this interview is that Chip Langston comes to us from a really, really important and I think often maybe sort of a lost art in the modern world. That is, of course, if you don't live in a world where horses are part of your everyday life. Chip Langston is a farrier. uh, And a good farrier was the difference between a really successful campaign if you were a cavalry soldier uh, and uh, utter disaster. Uh, A good farrier was a part of everyday life in the 18th and 19th centuries and certainly into the 20th century. Uh, Chip Langston gives us a really great analysis of the life of James Morris, and it's a name you'll certainly want to know. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Chip Langston. Chip Langston, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me on this uh, podcast. Tell us about your background. Well, I grew up in the uh, small town of uh, Morris, Connecticut, which was named after uh, James Morris in 1859. Uh, it used to be a district of Litchfield, which was uh, uh, the uh, Revolutionary War Center of Connecticut, pretty much. It was a, a real hotbed of activity. And uh, it separated from Litchfield in 1859, as I said. And uh, I grew up in that small town and went to James Morris Elementary School, uh, went to college and got a degree in geology and earth sciences. And, uh, after college, I went to work as a jeweler for a few years. And then I got involved in uh, personal computers back when they first came out and became a computer consultant for six or seven years and, uh, got tired of being in the office all day and and company politics. So I I left the company I was working with and, uh, took a, a drastic turn and became a professional farrier. And uh, for those who uh, don't know what a farrier is, it's uh, the person who comes around to the horses and trims their feet and puts horseshoes on them. It's a, a subset of blacksmithing. And I've been doing that for a, a little over 30 years now and uh, love that. And uh, it is the career has allowed me to uh, uh, pursue some of my hobbies and passions like uh, 
historical research and uh, writing. And uh, this is uh, what, got, what got me involved with uh, writing this article on James Morris. What first drew your interest into this topic? I started thinking about uh, James Morris back when I was a child in, uh, in Morris. Uh, I grew up right next to the, the property that was his childhood home. So I knew the, of his presence in town, and uh, I knew that he was uh, deemed a Revolutionary War hero. But, uh, you know, being younger, he just kind of accepted that fact and, and never really wanted to take a look at it until I got later in life. And I realized that uh, he probably had a pretty interesting story. And um, there really wasn't anything published on him, except uh, a couple of years ago, I came across a copy of his memoirs. And I said, oh, wow, now I have something to work with. And uh, I got a copy of his memoirs and uh, realized that he really was a hero. And he, he really experienced a lot during the war. And uh, I started doing research in other areas. And uh, it just kind of took off and had a life of its own. Chip, talk about Morris's early life. What do we know? Uh, near, more closer to Bethlehem, Connecticut than Litchfield. And uh, that established a uh, tie between uh, his family and uh, the Bellamy family in Bethlehem. Uh, James Bellamy was a, a, a prominent uh, preacher in New England at the time and a social activist. And uh, he baptized James, and the families became very close. And, uh, in fact, uh, Bellamy's son, Jonathan, was best friends with James Morris. And uh, uh, much like uh, many farming uh, communities back in those days, James grew up on a farm and uh, had to tend horses and cows and split and cut a lot of firewood and uh, build a lot of stone walls from the ubiquitous New England field stones. So uh, it was a rather typical childhood, but uh, he excelled. He was very intelligent, and he excelled in reading. And uh, at age, I believe it was six, he had completely read his father's Bible. And uh, at that point, his father bought him his own Bible. And he was very interested in, in education, and uh, when he was at uh, the appropriate age, after being schooled by uh, Dr. Bellamy, he attended Yale University and graduated with a, a degree in divinity uh, right, uh, right before the beginning of the Revolutionary War. How did Morris become involved in the Patriot Movement? Well, after he uh, graduated from uh, Yale, he uh, started teaching at the Litchfield Grammar School. And he was there for about a little less than a year when um, Bunker Hill happened, and uh, he received an unsolicited uh, offer from the Connecticut State Legislature that if he entered the Army to serve uh, as an ensign, <clears throat> they would give him a, a commission of an ensign, and he could enlist for six months. So he uh, asked his father and Dr. Bellamy uh, what he should do, and both of them said that uh, the country was in pretty dire straits, at, or the, the colonies were in pretty dire straits at that point, in that uh, they really needed his services. So he, and along with his friend uh, Jonathan Bellamy, uh, who also received a, uh, a commission from uh, the Connecticut State Legislature, decided to enter service in, in the uh, Washington's Army at that point. 
Chip, could you walk us through his early military career? Um, <clears throat> James was uh, uh, enlisted in the, the light infantry, which was the elite fighting force for Washington's army. They were in the forefront of, of the battles. They were, they were expected to uh, uh, tackle the British head-on, which they did in, in many, many battles. And uh, James's first battle was uh, the Battle of Long Island on August 27, 1776. And uh, only three weeks later, he was fought in the Battle of York Island. And uh, October 28th that year, he was in the Battle of White Plains. And uh, at that point, uh, winter was approaching and the armies went into uh, winter quarters. And he was only 70 miles away from Litchfield at that point. So he went home for the winter. And uh, in the beginning of January, uh, the Second Continental Congress offered him a second lieutenancy to re-enlist uh, in, in the Army. And as he was pondering whether he should accept it or not, he received another <laughs> invitation from the Second Continental Congress that upped their offer to a first lieutenancy if he re-enlisted. So he decided to re-enlist for the duration of the war. And uh, the rest of the uh, winter... Uh, he remained in Litchfield, and his orders were to recruit soldiers, and he recruited another 30 to 40 soldiers in Litchfield. And uh, he over was also uh, tasked with overseeing the inoculation of soldiers who hadn't uh, contracted smallpox, and he uh, oversaw the inoculation of about 200 soldiers while he was there that winter. But unfortunately, <laughs> his best friend, John Bellamy, died from smallpox that winter, so it was a, uh, a rather tragic one for him in losing his friend. And let's see. Uh, at that point, he, uh, when the spring arrived, he uh, marched his uh, new recruits down to Peekskill, where they joined Washington's uh, army again, and they started their uh, summer campaigns. And uh, let's see. If I remember correctly, he, he uh, participated in a number of battles around uh, Westchester, New York, that he detailed in his memoirs. And um, back in, uh, in October of that year was a, a real watershed moment for him in his uh, service. Uh, on October 4th, he was at the again with the light infantry he was in the forefront of the battle uh that attacked the british forces outside of philadelphia um, earlier in september the british had uh, sailed uh into the philadelphia area and captured the city of philadelphia and uh, many of the troops were uh, camping in germantown pennsylvania uh, washington ordered that uh uh, the, the American forces would attack the Germantown forces in a, in a dawn raid. And uh, James was in the forefront of one unit that was under the command of General Adam Stephen. And uh, it was a real foggy morning. And as the battle started, the musket fire added more uh, fog of war into the air and uh, General Stevens 
Stephen had his troops open fire on another uh, force of American troops. And unfortunately, uh, at that point, both, both troops uh, fled. And uh, James uh, retreated with his, his forces, but uh, about 10 miles uh, uh, west of the battle, he was captured by the British. And at that point, he became a prisoner of war for the next three and a half years. He uh, was uh, initially housed in what was called the Philadelphia's New Jail, which was a pretty terrible place, along with about 700 other patriots. And over the course of the next six months, uh, about 400 men uh, died in that prison. And uh, at one point uh, in the early spring, uh, James became very ill. And being a... Uh, 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 lieutenant, he was granted a parole of pardon where the British allowed him to leave the jail and he, board, he was able to board with a family in the city with the promise that he would not leave and that when they wanted him back, he would come back. So he was uh, allowed to, to leave the jail and he recovered in the, the house of a, a friendly family in Philadelphia. And uh, <clears throat> later in that, uh, later in the spring, the, the, the uh, British left uh, the city of Philadelphia and they took along all of their prisoners. And uh, he was transported up to Long Island and he was granted another parole of pardon. And for the next three years, he uh, was housed with a Dutch family. And uh, it was kind of a, a nice deal at that point. He uh, would pretty much had free reign of what he wanted to do and where he wanted to go. He, re he remained there with the family, but uh, he spent his time uh, reading, gardening, and walking. So it was kind of a nice deal for him for the, the next three years. But at that point, uh, the British and the American forces had a uh, prisoner exchange, and uh, he was... Uh, uh, exchange with some with some British prisoners of war in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, and uh, he returned to active service in Washington's army at that point. What were some of the highlights of Morris's later service? That was uh, <clears throat> some of the highlights of his uh, military career. Um, a couple months after he uh, was uh, uh, exchanged, Washington's forces combined with uh, the French forces and uh, hatched a plan where they were going to um, uh, encircle Cornwallis's forces uh, in Yorktown, Virginia. They, they realized that uh, with the French Navy uh, off the coast and with a prolonged bombardment and the right number of forces and men, they could bottleneck Cornwallis there and force a surrender. So Washington uh, ordered his troops uh, to uh, Yorktown, or outside of Yorktown, to, to the Chesapeake Bay area. And uh, James and his company uh, marched very quickly down uh, across the, uh, the area to uh, southern Virginia. And they were transported by boat to uh, about 13 miles above Yorktown, where, where the uh, bombardment of Cornwallis's forces began. And um, the, the bombardment worked. 
but there were still uh, two areas that uh, the British held. They were called redoubts, and uh, redoubt number nine and number 10 that offered uh, an escape route for Cornwallis. And if uh, they could take those redoubts, then Cornwallis would be be bottled up and he would be forced to surrender. So uh, General Washington realized that the only way they were going to take these redoubts, because they had been bombarding them for uh, a month now, that uh, the only way they could take it was a full frontal assault. Um, Alexander Hamilton volunteered to uh, be the leader that would attack redoubt number 10. And uh, the French were given the the, uh, honor of attacking redoubt number nine. They started the attack uh, in the dead of night. And uh, uh, Hamilton asked for volunteers to be the first group to attack the uh, redoubt. He nicknamed the group of Forlorn, Forlorn, Forlorn Hope because they assumed that there was going to be very high casualties. So uh, the Forlorn Hope was going to lead the attack, and Morris's uh, command and his troops were to be follow right behind Hamilton. Unexpectedly, there was a <laughs> they they made the quick dash over a quarter mile open land without being discovered until it was too late. And uh, the group of Alexander Hamilton's uh, men made it to the uh, redoubt without being fired upon, but uh, Morris's men were uh, fired upon and he lost a number of men in in that battle. But it ended very quickly and in about 10 minutes, Alexander Hamilton had captured the redoubt. And uh, shortly thereafter, the French captured their redoubt, and uh, Cornwallis's uh, forces were were bottled in. And after another day of bombardment, uh, Cornwallis surrendered. And uh, James got to witness um, the surrender of Cornwallis's troops. He wrote uh, a couple paragraphs in his memoirs about what that was like uh, watching the French tr- or watching the British troops come through. Uh, an open field with the American forces on one side and the French on the others. They had their colors uh, drawn, but uh, they had uh, muffled uh, services. They laid down their arms in an open field and then marched back to Yorktown and uh, eventually departed. So that was the highlight of his uh, service. And uh, once the uh, arms were uh, gathered up, and uh, shipped off. He and his forces returned to uh, New York, and uh, he remained in the Army for another year until November of that next year, and then he was allowed to muster out. And at that point, even though the war went on for another year, he ended his his service at that point. What happened to Morris after the war? Well, he did not rest on his laurels, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, Because of his uh, uh, education and his uh, heroism, he was accepted into the community as as a leader, and he became uh, uh, a judge, a sheriff, and uh, uh, an active participant in the community. But his real passion was teaching and uh, education. And in 1790, he established what what he called the Morris Academy, which became uh, a school that accepted students 
after their primary education. Up until that point, um, children would receive uh, enough schooling to be able to read and write, and then they were expected to uh, go off into the trades. But this offered a, uh, a gap um, so uh, children and young adults could further their education and perhaps go on to college after that. It was a, a, a five or six year program that uh, they could do that. And uh, the Morris Academy was one of the, the few and one of the first institutions in the United States that allowed women to uh, be educated. So he was in the real forefront of uh, the education community. And uh, the Morris Academy lasted for almost 100 years. And uh, the students that uh, were schooled there came from uh, really every state in the uh, growing United States and from nine uh, foreign countries. And one of the more famous uh, students that came out of that school was uh, John Brown, the uh, match for the uh, Civil War in the, in the 1860s. And uh, he kept up a personal correspondence with uh, James Morris until Morris's passing. So he was a real uh, firebrand in the education field, and he really relished being an educator and uh, helping uh, young men and women further education in this country. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, for sure, it uh, brings to light uh, what it was like to be a prisoner of war during during that period. And for, certainly from one person's experience, it uh, could be hellish in some areas and uh, quite nice in others. But it, it also uh, leads more, lends more light to uh, what it was like to be in the army and to to be in one of the elite fighting forces and at the forefront of these battles. And uh, he was a a very brave man and uh, very um, unpretentious. He he talks about, uh, you know, the battles that he was in, but he doesn't elevate himself and that he was the greatest, but he he brings it down to a, a fashion where, everybody could understand what it was like to be in the service at that point and what it was like to be in the war. So he, he, uh, he offers new, uh, more ground as to our understanding of what it was like back then. Chip Langston. Thanks again. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. The music played in this episode include works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge colonial militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.